Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Angel Anderson is a seasoned UX design leader and business strategist who left her VP user experience director position at Crispin Porter and Bogusky, CP&B, to found and run her own startup, Nail Snaps. Now as CEO, Anderson is responsible for scaling Nail Snaps to be an international success and truly loved by customers as the world's first mobile social nail design platform. In this episode, Angel talks about her journey from UX designer to CEO. Here are your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. We're so excited to have our guest, Angel Anderson, joining us today. Hi, Angel. Hi, Angel. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So, Angel, tell us about yourself. Well, I did grow up on army braces, (laughs) so I apologize (laughs) if I curse. Uh, We'll fix that in post. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I spent many years in my career as a UX designer, but now I am the CEO and co-founder of a startup called Nail Snaps, and Nail Snaps lets you put your photographs, your Instagrams, on your nails. That's amazing. Is it? Yeah. It is amazing. (laughs) I think it is amazing. I mean, that is so interesting to me to go from a UX designer to CEO entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So I have a real hard question for you. Okay. Has there been a time where you feel like you've had to compromise the UX of your app for business reasons. Uh, <laughs> I want to say no, but the truth is yes, many times, unfortunately. Um, things that would have been fights for me when I was the UX designer and I felt like I was responsible for the voice of the user. Uh, things like annoying pop-ups on a website. I was staunchly against those kinds of things. Turns out they're really effective in helping you build up an email list. And as annoying as they are, they don't necessarily deter people from participating in your site. So trade-offs like that, unfortunately, became really necessary. I have always thought of myself as a designer who could understand the business need and the user need and, and hopefully play in that area of intersection to make something that's both delightful and useful for the business. And now I realize I probably earlier in my career was much more on the user side, which I think is probably good for a junior designer. You really want to be passionate and have a ton of compassion and empathy for the user. But now I find myself feeling very, very empathetic to the business owners and the, the folks who are struggling with everything from ethical conundrums to just annoying things like pop-up windows. It's really a tricky balance to, to walk. And I try to walk it responsibly. But um, I definitely feel like there has been compromise and growth in that area. So where has your UX background really benefited you being a CEO? Well, I think a lot of people who have a, an idea for something like an app and Neil Snaps, you know, first and foremost is a mobile application. It lets you snap a photo, let's say of the pattern on your shirt. Laura's wearing a really beautiful shirt with peaches and leaves against a black background. Let me set the stage. Um, I can take a photo of that beautiful peach pattern and I can use a stencil to create how I want that pattern to be expressed on my nails. So I can tap and lock different parts of the image onto one nail and then keep moving the stencil around. Or I can say, I just want that one peach repeated on every nail. For me, when I had the idea of creating nail snaps, the first thing that really was like the puzzle I wanted to solve was how do I make 
translating an image into a nail design really simple. There were a lot of other nail wrap companies that had tried and failed to get a customization tool out. And I think the reason that they continued to beat their head against the wall is they kept putting out something that was like Photoshop for nails. And I thought, how do we make Instagram for nails? So I really started playing with the design first. And I think as a UX designer, uh, that really set the tone for how we built the company around that platform. We put a provisional patent together. We you know, put it out there. We user tested with real people. And because of that, we've been able to attract some humbling awards, uh, the UX uh, Award uh, for Design, the uh, Interaction Design Award, which we got to accept in Helsinki. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, we won the uh, Innovator of the Year Award from the National Association of Women Business Owners. So I think my background as a designer has really helped us to get to that level. And I think a lot of other co-founders possibly would have struggled and like it's a great business idea but the app would need work in our case the app needs no work well it always needs to evolve and grow um, but that's an area that I feel like is really really strong within our assets and capabilities wow uh, what's the most surprising thing you've learned from the users and your customers over the last year I really thought that this would be something that would appeal to much younger girls I thought that uh, younger girls would be interested in taking pictures of, I don't know, their favorite guy in One Direction or something. <laughs> uh, although that's not even that young these days. <laughs> but what we've found is that it's actually millennial moms, uh, women in their mid to late 30s even, are the ones who want great nails but are strapped for time. They have the money to spend, but they don't have time to get to the salon. They certainly don't have time to sit around waiting for paint to dry. So I was really surprised to find that our, our sweet spot in terms of our customer base is women who are slightly older. And we've done a couple things to attract a younger audience and start building the community. We find that younger, younger women will design like crazy, but they don't actually purchase. It's the ones who are slightly older who just don't have time to sit there with those little detail brushes who get really, really into nail snaps. That's amazing. How do you work with other UX designers and other designers now? Is that challenging for you? Well, no, because when I was in my previous life as a UX designer, my last role was VP of UX design at Crispin Porter and Bogusky. So I was actually managing a team of about five designers in the LA office and working with a much larger team within the broader global agency. So, so you'd already learned how to roll your eyes when they talked about <laughs> how they were doing fighting for the user. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I already felt capable of managing creative folk. And when I meet other like-minded designers, I feel like it's like people in my tribe. So we tend to get along naturally because I feel like we have a certain kinship and a certain affinity and, again, compassion and empathy for the user. So it becomes less of like a, a loggerheads. Even though I'm now the voice of the business, um, I feel like uh, it was really great to, to manage designers and to bring them into the fold. So what was that transition like moving from agency to owning your own business? Uh, well, it was really, really challenging on many fronts, to be honest. I, I had the good fortune to be working at an agency that was very holistic. CPB is known for not just putting out ads, but really thinking through an entire end-to-end -end life cycle. Uh, we have a philosophy called No Dead Ends um, that Matt Walsh kind of created and, and put forth. And 
that holistic thinking really helped me be ready for all the design work that I, that was going to be needed early on. Everything from notifications in app to what the email messaging was to what was on the website to how we communicated with our Kickstarter backers and the whole user journey through that arena. So that was a, a, a peacefulish part of the transition because I already had that kind of in mind and understood that part of it. It was all the other things outside of that that were very challenging. For example, I'd never fundraised before. Um, so even just going through a Kickstarter felt like a insurmountable mountain while we were in the middle of it. Uh, then having to actually go out and raise quote unquote real money with angel investors and VCs, another leveling up, uh, a, a different vocabulary, a different way of speaking, all new kinds of ways to position our platform. Uh, I also had never done things like figure out packaging and manufacturing and supply chain and international shipping because when you work at an agency, it's like, I have this great idea and then there's a beautiful team that can assemble your, your vision and make it into a reality. When you're the founder of a startup, especially a small startup, not only are you wearing every hat from like janitor to, you know, bank accountant, um, you also just have to roll up your sleeves and, and understand that there's going to be so many things you don't know how to do and you just have to figure them out. So it was, it was really challenging. So you got a little less sleep. Uh, yeah, I got no sleep. The, especially during the early days, the first year I think was probably one of the most challenging times of my life. And mind you, I was coming from a creative agency that was known for really pushing creative teams. I had I had already had a certain comfort level with pulling all-nighters and traveling to a pitch and like diving in and just spending, you know, 18, 19 hour days working with a, a, a team. So it wasn't that it was hard work, it was that it was hard work coupled with work I didn't know how to do. So figuring that out and feeling like we're under the gun to, to make sure that we hit this milestone before we ran out of money, very, very stressful. Stress on a level that I had really no idea what I was getting into. And I will say another thing is there was a lot more sexism, which again was mind-blowing coming from wow. the ad world where it's known that, you know, there's the 3% conference, for example, where only 3% of the world's creative directors are female. And I thought I had already kind of dealt with and understood that landscape. And then I got into startup culture. And again, it was like super bro fest. And suddenly I'm meeting with VCs, some of whom are judges at a, you know, woman empowerment pitch competition. And they're checking out my nails and touching me all the way up past my elbow and making jokes about how my co-founder would make a great next ex-wife really wow. mind-blowing yeah. misogyny, sexism, and weird innuendo that I, I just, I thought I'd left behind in the advertising world. And it was, in many ways, on many fronts, it was like going from the fire into the frying pan, or frying pan into the fire. Which one's worse? Yeah. Whichever one's worse, that's where I went. <laughs> do you do you think there's that it's changed at all? I mean, I know I, we're kind of in the middle of a sea change right now, so it's hard to judge, but oh, I don't know if you've noticed any, or if you're just better at handling it or more used to it. Uh, unfortunately, I think that we are in the midst of change, but change is very scary. And there are a lot of people who are deeply invested in things staying the same. And a lot of people who 
I think maybe have the best of intentions, but are now operating out of a place of fear. And without naming names, I'll, I'll say that one of the people who I got to know as an investor had an encounter with somebody who made an allegation of sexual inappropriateness. And his response, which really shocked and horrified me, was, well, I'm just not going to invest in women anymore because it's too risky. Wow. So is it changing? Yeah, but I think there's also a lot of backlash. I think the the Me Too phenomenon, the movement, it was great in exposing a lot of really, really bad behavior, but it also has have has made a lot of men, I think, feel very fearful, and they are now retreating from female uh, entrepreneurs. Thank God there's also a, a counterbalance to that. There are a lot of female VCs who are banding together and saying, we're going to do better. One of our uh, one of the people in our cap table is a woman named Arlen Hamilton. If you don't know who she is, she's worth looking up. She is an amazing investor who has specifically created a fund to support female entrepreneurs and people of color. And uh, she, she's part of an amazing group who are really doing some 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 wonderful things to level the playing field. But that's just one in a larger sea of, of many men who are kind of going back to their comfort zone, I think, and, and maybe retreating from female entrepreneurs because they're afraid of anything that could, could you know, be misconstrued. Right. And especially if there's a little tickle in the back of their mind, like, yeah, maybe I did say or do some inappropriate things. It's like, whoop, let's put that guard back up and let's just deal with what we know and look for the next hot young guy in a hoodie to create Facebook. Yeah, I mean, I think the transparency of everything is helping a lot. And companies who are bringing to light how much they're paying women and men for the same role. So I think the more that we get these stats, the better. Even when you look at, I think Fortune magazine had an article about um, female founders got 2% of venture capital dollars in 2017. Yes. So it when you know those stats, it helps us to at least have that awareness to start driving the change. As they say, you can't, man- you can't manage what you don't measure. So yeah. it's good to know. Yeah, I, I, I think you bring up a really interesting problem. And I, I feel like people have this problem about identity, right? Like, hey, maybe I did something that was wrong. And so their idea is that, makes, that might make them a bad person, right? Instead of dealing with the thing that they did, right? And separating out, you know, I've said that to lots of people in online flame wars over the years, <laughs> right? I'm not calling you a racist. What I'm saying is what you said was racist. I'm not calling you a sexist, but what you did <laughs> was sexist, right? And I think it's so difficult to not be defensive in those situations, but it's also inexcusable. I mean, honestly, what bullshit? I'm yeah. not going to invest with women. That's clearly like, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very childish response. It's, it's also made me much more aware of my own privilege as a white woman. When you talked about that stat, 2% of VC funds going to female entrepreneurs, we're one of those lucky that made it right. into the 2% that got some funding in 2017. But, and I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, okay, you know, they can see their wives or daughters in me. What about the women standing next to me, the African-American women, the, the Korean women who didn't get the same fair shake as I got? And I barely got any, <laughs> um, but they got nothing. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done to 
make things more fair, and also, you know, to improve the kinds of businesses that get to exist. There are a lot of really, really amazing female entrepreneurs and people of color who are starting businesses that need to exist, that deserve to exist, and that would actually improve our lives in dramatic ways, and they're just not getting the time of day. So I'm very, very grateful for people like Arlen and the folks at Backstage Capital, but also VC groups that specialize in, in funding women like Golden Seeds, and even you know Pasadena Angels, who is also in our cap table, they've done a remarkable job of reaching out to non-traditional entrepreneurs, and I'm very, very grateful. <laughs> I think I said earlier optimistically that we're in the middle of a sea change. I hope we are, and I, I believe that we are. I think we are, um, but when you're in the middle of a sea change, a lot of shit gets kicked up from the bottom of the ocean floor, and yeah. I think that's the time that we're actually in. It's messy. Things are things are very dark and murky right now because of the sea change, but I think I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, so I'm hopeful that where we're going to get to is a much better place. Switching topics, mm -hmm. although that I think remains a background topic <laughs> for all of us again uh, during these times. The other thing that I always associate with you is your Ignite talk on why people share. Oh, yes, goodness. I love so that. So I want to go back. Okay. I mean, I, when I first knew you, as this is the time machine. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I okay. My impression was that you forced yourself to do something that you were afraid to do. Yes, and that. When I have the story of Angel in my mind, I think of that as, as like a moment when you sort of like made the scene. I, I don't know how to, like that sounds weird, I know, but, but I, I just, for people out there who might be not sure if they could get up in front of a bunch of people and talk, yeah. I wonder if you could talk about how sure. you got there. Uh, or tell, so, maybe tell the people what I'm even talking about. Yeah, okay, so I think it was 2012. I was living in Boulder, Colorado, working at Crispin Porter and Bogusky. Maybe it was 2011. I was working uh, for Matt Walsh, uh, who is now the founder of Greenstone. Greenstone's a great consulting company, too. You should check them out. I was working under Matt Walsh, and he was saying he wanted everybody on the team to be more visible on the scene and to be more part of the larger global user experience design and interaction design community. So he said, I want you all to start submitting talks, and the first person who gets a talk accepted will get this very nice bottle of wine. Well. I'm not much of a wine drinker, but man, am I competitive. <laughs> so I, as soon as the gauntlet was thrown down, I was like, okay, you know, what can I submit for? What's coming up? There happened to be uh, an Ignite session that was had an open call that was happening in, in our local area there in Boulder. And I thought, oh, a five-minute talk. Well, that'll be easy because a five-minute talk, you know, I won't have to prepare as many slides. That'll be a good, like, dipping of the first toe into the water. Five-minute talk. How hard can it be? Well, it turns out the Ignite format is one of the hardest formats to present because, yes, it's only five minutes, but the slides, you have to create 20 slides and you don't actually control them. Once you stand up there, they auto-advance. So you have to have your presentation down cold. They also don't provide you notes. So you have to have the timing exact. It has to be perfectly rehearsed and, and feel extemporaneous, but it has to be timed perfectly to your slides, which is not an easy thing to do if you're a first-time speaker. And I'd never spoken anywhere before other than to clients, you know, at a, a small conference room, 12, maybe 20 people max. So I was thinking, wow, this is going to be a big deal because their last Ignite, you know, was at the Boulder Theater and they had about 200 people. 
So I'm talking to the person who's organizing it. He says, well, we're not doing it at the Boulder Theater this week because that week because it also happens to be uh, Tech Week here in Boulder. So we're going to do it at this other theater. And I said, okay, great, great. And he said, yeah, we'll have about 1,200 people and we're going to live stream it to the larger community. And I felt so nauseous, I almost threw up right when he said it. So now I'm getting really, really worked up. I've already got my slide deck. I've already been preparing, but I, I'm starting to feel just like sweaty every time I think about it. I think on the day of, I legitimately asked somebody in the office to slap me across the face because I was starting to feel a little hysterical about how nervous I was. And um, if you Google it, um, you can Google Angel Anderson, why we share. And when you watch this five minute Ignite talk, you will notice that I am chewing a piece of gum. I forgot that I had it in my mouth when I went on stage and I was chewing it and so pumped up with adrenaline that when I got off stage, I remembered it was in my mouth and I pulled out this it felt like a husk of cardboard. Like I turned this poor piece of gum into <laughs> jerky. It was like petrified, hard as a rock from all the adrenaline in my system. And it was it was very scary, but it went okay. And I got the bottle of wine and then that set me on the path to turn that talk into a larger talk, which I then gave at uh, the Interaction Design Conference a, a year later. And from that point on, I felt much more comfortable being in front of large groups. Now I'm okay speaking and I actually enjoy pitch competitions because for me, it's a little bit like a karaoke performance. As long as I know the, the main tune of the song, I can kind of wing it slide to slide. <laughs> and I can also attest that you're an awesome karaoke performer. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's actually yeah. one of the things that I'm most proud of being endorsed for on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, do you have any advice for someone who might be, you know, thinking about doing a presentation like that or wanting to get out and... You know, there there's so many great books on it. There's so you know, so many techniques that you can learn. Um, I took actually a, a workshop uh, that um, really really helped me. The Cranky Talk workshop. All right. Oh, that's great. I'd forgotten that you did that. Yeah. Was that before the Ignite Talk or? or you know what? It was after. Right. But it, you know, I realized how do I take this five minute talk and expand it into something that's actually meaningful? And that gave me an understanding of like different styles of presentation and different ways to structure, you know, the beginning, middle, and end. Always happy to do a shout out to Dan Willis, by yeah, the way. Yeah, so. Dan Willis was like a phenomenal teacher and gave me a lot of confidence and a lot of really great techniques. This is going to sound really boring, but the number one most important thing that a lot of people just fail to do, memorize your slides and practice live in front of people. I was very fortunate that Matt Walsh and like the larger team let me practice in front of them before I got up, um, and that made all the difference. And now it's something that I always do. They, they tell you to do that, but so many people just get nervous about practicing in front of people. It's super important to do that because... The live practice in front of a real live studio audience, even if it's just one person, it's going to really help you get that that pattern down and make it feel like it's very natural when you're actually on stage delivering it. And it seems like when you're doing all these pitches for the ad agency that you could take some of that structure and story arc into sort of your talks and how you structure those. Is that kind of how you approached it? Absolutely. I think when you're pitching for an agency, they talk a lot about the theater of the pitch. There's dramatic pauses. 
There's swag that you hand out, but at a certain moment, because you don't want people thumbing through little tchotchkes or even a, a, a flyer before you're ready for them to take their eyes off of you. So there's a lot of staging that goes on with an agency pitch, and that kind of stagecraft was very, very helpful uh, for getting my my presentations down. And now, you know, I've, I've fortunately won a couple of pitch competitions, which, um, you know, is another little gold star. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. If I can switch topics again, sure. I'm curious what you think of as sort of innovations in the app space. Like what are some interfaces, interactions, cool things you've been looking at or thinking about I recently? Think, I think a lot of interesting things are going to come out of facial recognition, as dangerous as that can also be. I think, you know, right now there's a lot of customer feedback surveys that could probably replace be replaced by just looking at people's faces while they're using the app. Do they look confused? Do they look angry? Do they look frustrated? When they sit there thumbing through your app, are they smiling? Are they frowning? Are they dumbfounded? So I think facial recognition as a means for feedback and real-time improvements, I think is going to be really interesting. I think AR and VR are obviously going to be huge on the horizon, but right now the way that the devices are set up, it's very limited. This becomes kind of like a, a snorkel mask through which you can see awesome things that get added onto your environment, but I haven't really seen anything beyond that come to light. So I think for now, the biggest innovation for mobile apps and for for anything on mobile, which is like where everything is going to be, um, is really facial recognition. And I think they don't have that in Android yet. Do they? Do they? I think so. I think they're working on a kit for it. But yeah, yeah, it is interesting to look at the emotional sentiment that they're starting to play with mm-hmm. and measuring right now with facial recognition. I think it could be exact and it could be incorrect as well so i think we need to be careful about how we're measuring that in regards to the the experience i actually i'm gonna respectfully disagree i think that it's actually going to be very accurate and probably more accurate than an actual interview with the user and here's why i don't know if you've ever seen that show lie to me yes yeah okay so This is based on a guy, it's loosely based on a guy whose name I'm not going to be able to remember, um, who studied facial expressions. Turns out there's only about 64 muscles in your face, which means the combination of, of muscle movements to create an expression are pretty finite. It's not like hundreds of millions. It's actually pretty small, and I think for, uh, you know, in terms of machine learning, it's just like a blip. So I think that with proper facial recognition techniques that are built onto the algorithms that this guy already kind of mastered when he was doing it just he became basically a human lie detector really fascinating story and i wish i could uh pull his name up um maybe in the show yeah yeah please include that in the show notes but the character in lie to me is loosely based on this guy's work um, because he what he can do is he'll interview somebody and he'll notice just like slight twitches and and you know smirks micro micro expressions and those reveal everything he needs to know about the person's testimony or you know how they're really feeling and i think that with facial recognition software and the fact that there are such a small finite number of of permutations that a human face can make and those those expressions are actually universal i think it's actually going to be 
a remarkable change in the way that we gather feedback and the way that we interact with users because we're going to be able to tell when they're happy or sad and respond accordingly. I was looking for something the other day related to suicide girls, for example, and I typed in uh, suicide in Instagram. Uh, when you do that, it actually says, hey, th this can bring up content that can be triggering. Do you actually need help or do you want just want to see the content? And I thought, wow, that's very responsible. Instagram, thank you. And, you know, I proceeded to the content, but I, I, I had no idea. And I'm wondering if in the future they're just going to be able to see maybe somebody's crying sure. when they're thumbing through Instagram. I think a lot of we're starting to realize that social media can have a detrimental effect on our health and well-being because we have it's more than FOMO. It's just like, wow, I just don't measure up at all. Right. Uh, so I think that facial recognition can start to help companies that are interested in doing good actually help people's well-being by recognizing when they're not feeling great and taking steps to change right. that tide. Facial recognition cover, co combined with artificial intelligence is going to lead us to a new era where we don't necessarily think of our artificial agents or, you know, artificial intelligence as like this slave kind of mechanism, but somebody who can actually be kind of a help and a comfort to us, a partner even in co-creation and collaboration for creative endeavors, because they're going to understand when we're tired or when we're just not feeling it. I hope. <laughs> I would love to have a, a, a cool, sentient sidekick <laughs> like um, Samantha and her. Please be my best friend, Samantha. <laughs> I think the challenge and, you know, if anybody had told me 20 years ago when I started working online that the net result would be to unleash humanity's inner troll. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. My career might have been different. I mean, I, I think there's such a need to think about how to put those tools on the side of the individuals. You know, I don't think we know where to draw the line between the individual and the institution, mm -hmm. right? Like right now, it's amazing. We're living in an age of wonders. You can get access to Google's uh, visual recognition and facial recognition or Microsoft's API. Like this stuff is very easily available even if in its infancy. But, you know, we can anticipate the same kind of concerns we have about Facebook, which is, wait a second, what are these corporate entities gonna be doing with the fact that they now have this very intimate knowledge, even more intimate than where I am. I mean, and, forget and about the I corporate bought. entity, the political entity. Right, right. I mean. Yes, well that, that becomes even darker, right? To think about what the state will be able to do with the, with the ubiquitous surveillance environment is really chilling. But I, I think, you know, that's the call to action. I think that's the thing that, that hopefully uh, we can, someone can figure out, right? I'd love for there to be a, a way to have a digital, an AI that was on my side that mm -hmm. helped protect me from other AIs, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. as, as, as one way of thinking about it. I mean, there are some people who say that designers need to take something akin to a Hippocratic oath, where we pledge to do no harm and to, yes. you know, keep the, the needs and, and desires of the user as the primary driver of what we do. I think I kind of agree with that. Uh, Alan Cooper gave a really great talk at Interaction this year. And, you know, it was really about how we've seen the breakdown of society because we had decisions made early on that allowed a flood to form where if, if responsible designers could have possibly thought a few moves ahead, they could have put rocks in the right place to make, make sure that that never happened. 
But I think none of us at the time had any idea. It was just about building something cool. I say this as if I worked at Facebook. I never worked at Facebook. But for all the folks, the well-meaning people and friends that we have who, who did work for Facebook or Twitter or, or who are now working for Google and working on Alexa, I think that now more than ever, it's time to, to peel back some of the, some of the freedom that it was put onto those platforms and really start putting up guardrails so that nefarious entities, whether they're political or corporate or some kind of horrible, evil combination of the two, can't, like, uh, what is it, something Analytica? <laughs> That's Everybody a corporate slash, slash political entity. When they, get their, when they get their meat hooks into a platform like Facebook, the damage that can be done, it's, it's catastrophic. And manipulative. It's, yeah. It's just horrible. I mean, there is a responsibility that we have. And so how do we implement that? I, I respectfully disagree with that position. I okay. mean, I don't think there's 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 nothing wrong. I'm all for designers being considerate and, and ethical and, and, and pledging to do their best. But I, I just think that it, it it's a structural issue in the sense that you really cannot expect commercial entities to be ethical what they're about is efficiency and profit protecting citizens is is a function of the public Mm -hmm. discourse i i think it's the government i think it's regulation and policy uh that we have to enact and i i think it's part of where we struggle right now is we're living in an age where we're so distrustful of what the government is really able to do and what's a legitimate use of government power and it's certainly also subject to abuses but I think that that's where the protections come from. I, I would say it's got to be from both. Just like in the medical industry, you know, you have doctors who on an individual level take this oath to do good. And you also have regulations about what kinds of procedures a doctor can perform and how those procedures are performed and what safeguards have to happen when they are performing those procedures. There's a lot of regulation around how medicine is practiced. And I think that that's responsible. The issue, though, is in order to get the right laws put into play, we have to elect officials who actually understand all this stuff. And, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying, it was like, oh, making my skin crawl because it was so clear that most of the people asking him questions didn't understand what they were asking, let alone the responses that he was giving. So I don't think that we currently have a government that is capable of putting the right regulations in place. So it's incumbent upon us as as designers and people in the tech industry to say, all right, some of us are going to actually have to get into politics. And when those folks do stand up, I think uh, Brianna Wu is, a, is an interesting candidate for that reason. When those, you know, decide to put themselves into the crosshairs of a political discourse, we have to support them with everything we've got because they are the people who can put those regulations in place. And without them, it's going to be even worse than it is now. And it's pretty effing bad. <laughs> yeah, that's really brilliant. Thank you. Uh, that helps uh, clarify some things in my head. I think you're right. We need to be individually ethical and, and we need to be motivated to act politically because mm-hmm. that's that's the will that we need to exert to be able to make progress mm-hmm. against these forces that we unleash, uh, you know, by always thinking <laughs> about the Have you now decided to run for Senate, Chris? <laughs> is this, is this an aha moment for right. you? I think well, you would make a great senator. <laughs> I think I might start with parks and recreation. <laughs> <laughs> we can get you some nail snaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Uh, last question I have is, what would you like to be your legacy? Gosh, that's such a great question. I want to be known for several things. I, I don't know if there's just one thing that I want, like, she was nice, <laughs> written on my epitaph. I think leaving behind good products. Again, Alan Cooper talked about being a good ancestor. Uh, leaving behind a good design culture, making new young designers feel welcome and special and capable of stepping into the scene in a big way and not feeling like it's all been done. I, I remember having that feeling when I first became a designer and I made this long list of all the designers that I admired and then I realized, wow, they're all still alive and they're all on Twitter and I can talk to them. What an awesome time to be getting into this field when all of the people who've literally written the book are still practicing. But in about five, 10 years, that's not gonna be true. So I think it's really important for us to reach out to young designers and make them feel like this is their time and they can still have relationships with a lot of senior folks um, and that they can also make a splash in their own right. And then finally, I, I would very much like to leave the planet in a better state. And I don't know right now if I'm working in a path that, that helps that, um, but I think in my next adventure. It's going to need to be something that's more aligned with my political values because if anything, this last uh, couple of years has made me more uh, invigorated than ever to to do good and be on the side of, of what's going to be helpful in the world rather than hurting it. So how can people find you? They can check out nailsnaps.com to see uh, what I've been working on for the last three years. Um, on the Nailsnaps website, you can buy top designs from that have bubbled up from our community members, and you can find a link to our Create app, which you can download free off of the App Store. Our Nailsnaps app actually made the App Store's best new apps list when it was launched. It was the very first time right. in my career that I've ever made that list. You can't pay to be on it. So it was like, whoa, finally. <laughs> so yeah, you can download the free Nail Snaps app. You can also find Nail Snaps everywhere on social media at Nail Snaps, all one word, fingernail, just like that, N-A-I-L-S-N-A-P-S. -S. And if you're interested in continuing conversation with me, I'm just at Angel on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank that you, guys. Really, that was really a great good. conversation. It good questions. Really good conversation. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE dot IS.